Hello, and welcome to episode 102 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. If you haven't yet checked out the new Modern Manager website, please head over to themodernmanager.co and take a look. I am so proud of it. And while you are there, you can subscribe to the weekly email, which includes the episode mini guide, links to the blog articles, which are great for sharing with colleagues or friends who aren't podcast listeners. Don't ask me why people don't like podcasts, but some people just prefer to read a blog. So I create a blog every week and you can share that with your friends and colleagues. And of course, while you are on the website, you should also check out the benefits of membership, which includes a Slack group where we post questions and challenges and support each other as managers. There are guest bonuses as part of the membership, along with episode guides, coaching, and more. And I am super excited to share that I have added a second group coaching call to the calendar. So now if you join at the bud level, you get the option of attending two monthly coaching calls where we tackle your specific questions, your specific management challenges. And you don't have to worry if you can't make the scheduled times because you can send your questions in advance. And I always respond to them in the call anyways. And then I post the recordings afterwards. I would love to be your coach and I would love the opportunity to work with you to help you tackle those frustrating moments as a manager and apply the lessons from the podcasts so that you can truly be a modern manager with a thriving team. Again, that website is themodernmanager.co. Now today's guest is Noelle Cordo. Noelle is CEO and founder of Journey Coaching and the Catalyst Coaching Intensive. She's also a feminist scholar, coach, speaker, and sexologist who specializes in the relationship with the self. Noelle and I talk about the difference it makes when you approach situations and people with a positive mindset. We get into a lot of models and brain science and technical stuff, so if that's your jam, you are going to love this. And if it is not, don't worry, Noelle gives really practical advice for how to use all that sciencey stuff to be a modern manager. Now, here's our conversation. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Thank you so much for joining me today, Noel. I am really excited to talk to you for so many reasons, but one of them is that you talk about appreciative inquiry. And that was actually one of my first encounters with this world of kind of culture and organizational development and positive psychology and all of that. And it's one of the things that set me down the path that I'm on today. And I so rarely get to talk to people about it. And I, there are just not that many people in the world who know about it or who've been certified like I have. So it's just very exciting. So I'm really excited for our conversation and I'm excited to have you today. Oh, thank you so much. Likewise, it's a great topic. So let's start kind of on that note, which is this term poetic principle. What is this term and where does it come from? Yeah, so the the poetic principle is one of the theoretical underpinnings of appreciative inquiry. And when we're thinking about the poetic principle, it's that we can learn anything, that we are capable of picking up and learning just about 
anything in this world. And so when we're approaching our intellect or roadblocks, or especially coming from the perspective of managing others, a lot of times folks see their limitations and then stop and hit a wall. And as managers, if we're really truly looking at our employees, not only as sponges capable of absorbing information, but as mighty creatures who are capable of changing and doing great things, then we can use that principle to our advantage. This sounds really similar to growth mindset. Is is that the same or is there some differences? You're right. A lot of these theories and theoretical underpinnings kind of marry with each other. And, you know, the growth principle is basically having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. You know, where I would line this up if if we're if we're lining up growth theory alongside of appreciative inquiry. There's another theoretical underpinning, which is social construction theory, which is kind of the same thing. So if we're saying, okay, here's the poetic principle, you know, we can learn anything we want to. Social construction theory tells us that we have all been born with a social construction. So in other words, when we're born, we have this I like to describe it as a cardboard box that sits on our head and that box tells us who we are, the level of education we can achieve, how far we can physically move and travel in this world, the amount of money that we can make, who we can marry, how we can love. And in the work of coaching, and in many ways, the work of coaching is the work of managing, when you take that box off of someone's head and say, look, actually there's an expanse of reality that you can enact at any given time. It can be startling at first because that fixed mindset, that box, while limiting, is often pretty comfortable. Oh, I'm thinking of like so many experiences that I've seen, you know, in others or I've had in my own life where it's like the blinds get lifted and you realize that like it was your own your own structure, your own mindset, your own framing that like didn't allow you to see what was actually in front of you or what was actually possible. Yes, that's exactly it. And so, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about this stuff and we're saying, okay, you know, this is all great and these are all theories and this is all wonderful, but how do we actually move someone from thought to action? And it's, it's helpful to kind of have those moments of recognition of times in your own life so that you can pull from empathy when you're working on it with others. So is there a story that you want to tell us about someone who had that kind of aha moment or kind of how you get to that aha moment? Yeah, the the aha moments are always so interesting, right? And and they typically come from these wonderful little nuggets called mastery experiences. Mastery experiences fall under the category of self-efficacy, which is one of the building blocks of developing confidence. And the science behind self-efficacy tells us that If we don't know how to do something, we have a self-belief that we can figure it out, that we have the tools that we need to look out into the world and using the poetic principle, learn new things. Not everybody can get there on their own. And so one of the ways that we can kind of set ourselves up for the marathon of life of self-discovery is to enact small, tiny mastery experiences that lead us towards a greater realization of, oh my goodness, I can do hard things. I can do things that I never thought I could. For me, it was 
I really, my relationship with math and science that came into the play. I never saw myself as someone who could go very far academically in my college years. And I was an okay student in college. And then afterwards, I really kind of floundered around in my early 20s trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. And I got to a point where I found my passion. I discovered coaching, applied positive psychology, feminist theory, all of this stuff that I love. And I got myself into graduate school. And not only did I get myself into graduate school, it was a triple degree program, two masters and a PhD. And I had one class at a time proved to myself that I could do this work, that I could do hard things. And I maintained a 4.0 GPA. And then I got to biology and I had to pass neurobiology in order to move from the master's level to the PhD level. And that was really, for me, I think, the reckoning of, oh my God, this is the thing that I've always been so scared of. And I had to sit and I had to do it. And one chapter at a time, one exam at a time, I ended up getting an A in the class. And that totally changed my self-perception. Wow. That's an amazing story. I can't believe you were in a triple degree program, which is insane. But you know, what you're saying about having kind of these small wins along the way that then can kind of build up your confidence that can kind of give you something to to turn to, to say like, yes, I can do this other hard thing too. You know, it sounds so silly, but like people always talk about like, oh, like fitness is like part of life. And if you can go hard in the gym, you can go hard in life. And like, I never really got that because just didn't ever seem to make sense to me until I started doing trapeze. So sorry for the digression here, but there was something about standing up on a platform really high in the air and knowing I was in a harness and knowing that there was a net that was going to catch me and yet having my heart pound through my chest and just feeling like, I can't believe I'm going to do this again <laughs> after I did it the first time. Like, I can't believe you're going to put yourself through this again and doing it over and over and over to the point where like, I just, I love doing it. And that feeling now isn't a scary feeling. It's actually that positive feeling. And there are things that I do in work where I started to notice when I had to go have a difficult conversation with somebody and I would start to get that same kind of like chest pounding, scary feeling that I'd be like, I know this feeling. This doesn't have to be that, oh my God, bad feeling. This can be a like, I'm about to do something that could be amazing, that could potentially change this person's life by giving them this feedback, right? The same way that I would stand on that platform and jump off and be like, this could be the time that I get that trick and I nail it. And being able to kind of, as you're saying, have those moments where you can look back and say, I can do this. I've done hard things before. It's just so powerful. So sorry for my like random non-work digression here. No, I think that's such a, I mean, that's a, that's an awesome example. And I want to stay with that feeling for a second of when our heart is pounding and we feel uncomfortable and we don't like the way that we feel. And it's this rush of exhilaration, right? So, you know, talking to our managers and thinking about, well, how do I coach someone through this? How can I move my team through this? It's the recognition that that feeling is the point where most people retreat. And so we can set up mastery experiences in really safe ways, just like you knew you were in that harness. As a manager, I've said to my team, a team member who was scared, this is above my skill level, I don't want to do this, do it. 
I have your back. I'm going to watch you. I'm going to observe you. And that falls into the category of emotional interval training, which is really neat work. It's a construct where you push out into a space of emotional discomfort for a short period of time, and then you pull back in again, and then you push out further, and then you pull it back in again until you get used to the discomfort. And essentially, you teach yourself that the sky isn't going to fall. I love that idea. I've, I've never heard this model, but this kind of step in and then kind of pull back. And like each time you can kind of get more comfortable, you can go a little bit farther that I love that. Yeah, the story behind the theory is really great. It comes from a theorist named Albert Ellis, and he's a a psychologist, and he invented emotional interval training. And the way he came up with it was directly from his own life. He was a single guy, he was a bachelor. He was painfully shy. He was really terrified of women, and yet he was such a romantic, and he wanted a partner, and he wanted to get married and have a domestic life. And he knew like so many others, that that what he was doing wasn't working for him. And if he remained the same, nothing would change. And so he had to change. He forced himself to sit on a park bench in Central Park in New York every day for about a period of six months and speak to every woman who sat down next to him. He wasn't asking them for a date. He was simply invoking conversation. And what he learned is no one puked, no one called the cops. And eventually he got over his fear of speaking to and addressing women and was able to move on with his life. That's such a beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah, that's just lovely. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about this idea of the manager kind of playing that role as support, as coach as advisor, as manager, you know, kind of all these different hats we wear. How do you distinguish or, you know, do you distinguish between talking to your team members as their manager, talking to them as a coach, talking to them and being an advisor or other roles that we might play? That's a great question. And I think everybody has to address that question uniquely for themselves. And what I would recommend is using your personal values of how you approach your role as the underpinning for how you approach any given scenario. So for me, the whole person well-being of my employees is vitally important. If, if my employees don't feel like they are seen, heard, understood, safe, and valued in their decision-making, they won't take risks. They won't push the envelope. They won't come to me right away when there's a problem because they're experiencing a lack of psychological safety. So that psychological safety is number one for me. So that is the lens through which I approach every conversation, whether it's advising or coaching or managing or directing or problem solving. And the tool or technique that I use to enact this is empathy mapping, where whatever the situation is, you start with a human in front of you. And as a manager, take a little bit of time, maybe five minutes, just to think about who this person is. What are they thinking in this situation? What are they feeling? What are they seeing? What are they saying and doing? And what are they hearing from others? And from there, you kind of start to map this person's world and anticipate how they might be responding. And then from there, you go into it from an anti-shame perspective of saying, hey, 
this whole thing that we're talking about right now, here's what I thought was going to happen. And it looks like something else happened instead. Can you help me connect the dots and move from where I thought was going to happen to what actually happened? And let's see if we can put our heads together. So you just said something that I don't want to run past, which is this anti-shame approach or anti-shame lens framework. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the right words are here, but that seems really important. So can you dig into that a little bit more? It's super important. And it's super important from a neurobiological perspective, because as I mentioned, you know, my, my values are centering the well-being of my employee so that they experience psychological safety. What is required to experience psychological safety comes down to the difference between your nervous system and your endocrine system. When your nervous system is fired up, that's when we go into our fight or flight response, cortisol surges through your body. And another really important thing to understand is when that happens, your limbic brain gets lit up. When your limbic system is coming to the party, your prefrontal cortex, which is the logic center of your brain, the decision maker of your brain that drives attention and focus from one thing to the next is suspended. So for your employees, your emotional brain and your logical brain can't be turned on at the same time. If we feed the capacity of the nervous system to enter that fight or flight response with a nervous system response, we effectively shut down our employees' capacity to access their logic center. That doesn't seem like a good idea. (laughs) No, it's certainly not. And so when we're thinking about this from a whole person perspective of saying, okay, what are the emotional circumstances that I need to create to invoke the best performance from folks? It's making sure that that nervous system stays at bay. And when we're activating the prefrontal cortex through positive emotions, joining, learning, partnership, a secondary response happens. Our endocrine system starts functioning. And that is the slow pulsing of oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. And those chemical hormones not only increase prefrontal cortex functioning, your logic center, they also increase coordination, cardiovascular damage to your heart, so you're physically increasing your health, and it gives you the capacity for a bird's eye view where you can actually engage in better decision making. So this all sounds amazing, and now I'm thinking, all right, how do I make sure that I don't screw this up when I go have a conversation with my team member and do the opposite? So are there guidelines or principles or kinds of questions that are good to ask or things that are good to say and things that are maybe not so good? Yeah. So it it could be the simple difference between why and what. The question of why is notorious for putting people on the defense. The question that starts with what opens people up and sets a different emotional tone. And it's the difference between going into a scenario where there's something that's gone horribly wrong and taking a punitive approach versus a factual approach of there's no such thing as a mistake. It's all just data. Let's see if we can figure this out. Can you say a little bit more about these kind of why versus what? Like give us examples of like what would be a why question and then how could you reframe it as a what question? So when we're talking about why questions, 
I think it's easiest for people to understand this when they're thinking about their home life, when they're thinking about their, their family at home. And think about how things go when you find something disgusting that one of your family members has let run amok. And you approach it with a, why is this happening? Or why did this happen? How does that typically go for you? Versus, oh, this is so curious. What led this interesting thing to be here? I'm already, I have like the perfect example of my, in my head already with my own family life of like, why aren't you children doing this thing? And then the opposite of what's going on that is leading you to not be where you should be right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What got in the way? Oh, I love this. And the, the sense of curiosity that comes out when you're asking questions like what got in the way or what happened here? How did we end up here? Versus that accusatory tone, even when you don't mean it to be there, of why didn't this go as planned? Why didn't this work out? Like now it's almost like you're asking the person to come up with an excuse or a reason versus what being, give me the data, as you said. Exactly. And and this really goes a lot further. When we're using what questions, like what got in the way, we're externalizing the problem. We're giving your person, whether it's your kids or your employee, an out and an opportunity to be really honest about what got in the way because they know that the focus isn't on them and their shortcomings. Well, and on that note, I've found when I have conversations like that with people, they are much more willing to admit when they were at fault because they don't feel like you're pointing the finger. Yeah. When somebody drops the ball, they drop the ball. And correcting and moving through that experience with grace towards a better future image is part of developing mastery experiences. That's why emotional interval training requires intervals. Because when you push out into that risk zone or you've dropped the ball, it feels terrible. And then you pull back into safety. So as a manager, when you're creating both the expanse to push out, like, this didn't work out so well. And then we pull back to safety. Okay, let's work on it together. I'm here with you. That's exactly it. And there's something about when I make a mistake, at least I'll speak for myself. I find it's much easier for me to say, I dropped the ball on this. Here's what happened. And I'm sorry. Here's what I learned. I can do this better next time. But when someone says, You did this wrong, my natural instinct, you know, as you've been articulating around all the science in our brain, my natural instinct is to be like, No, I didn't. Or it's not my fault. Or here's the five reasons why that happened. And it's like having permission to own the mistake myself or own the misstep or the thing that just didn't work out the way that I had planned, even if it wasn't an intentional, you know, ball drop, but whatever it was, when I get to own it myself, I get to have that growth moment. But as soon as somebody is pointing a finger at me, it just all shuts down. Oh, very much so. And, you know, we can pull in some appreciative inquiry here and think about identity and image. So in the example that you're describing, when people have the opportunity to take ownership for themselves, it changes the way that they see themselves in that moment as like, I'm being responsible, I'm being a leader, I'm being somebody who can, you know, move the ball down the field and take ownership. I'm strong in that moment versus I am weak, I am being punished, I am being accused. And we know from appreciative inquiry, this is the anticipatory principle, that human systems move 
in the direction of images of the future. So if someone is coming to you or you are going to someone and slamming them, someone is going to move in the direction of that image of I am wrong, I am bad. And if we set up a positive, hopeful image of the future, people usually step up and embody that. So if I want to kind of bring more of this positive psychology into my management approach, are there a couple places where it's just easy to start with, kind of places where you're like, yep, here's the one or two things that you can do tomorrow that are going to be kind of easiest or most impactful way that you can kind of shift your language or shift your approach? So I'll give you two. And we've, we've touched on both of them today. And the first one is probably the easiest. It's the why versus what. And that's something that we can all start doing right now, today, in every conversation that we have. And then the second one would be the empathy mapping technique, which is a way of addressing shortcomings and problems that externalizes beyond the person. And the sequence there is, here's what I thought was going to happen this happened instead, can you help me connect the dots between my expectation and the actual outcome? So simple. I mean, like it really does sound so simple. And those couple of questions feel like I could easily, you know, write them on a sticky note if I needed to remind myself and kind of walk into that meeting so that I can follow that kind of sequence in an an appropriate way. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you're having a hard time connecting to the value underneath it, it's the value of externalization. Because you would notice that none of those questions, except for, can you help me, have anything to do with a you statement. Oh, so cool. All right. So before we have to wrap up, I am curious if you ever run into challenges where people feel like this positivity, this kind of externalization, that this is really about being nice and that it's like rose-colored glasses. No one ever did. They didn't do anything wrong. Is that something that you've run into or is there enough distinction in kind of this idea of bringing a positive mindset that kind of growth-oriented, everyone can learn, we can externalize this to get to better results is, is different enough and clear enough that it doesn't get mixed up with like, oh, I have to be a nice boss. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And I've seen this play out across different industries intergenerationally, where, you know, boomers and Gen Xers are used to a work environment where you show up, you shut your mouth, and you do what you're told. And then we're looking at millennials and Gen Z who want to be seen, valued, have more purpose alignment with their tasks. And so I see kind of a generational clash there. And there's also sometimes a gendered lens where it's like, oh, well, you know, you as a manager enact this because you're a woman. And it's like, no, because I, my background is neurobiology, actually. And so, it, you know, it, it depends on kind of your comfort level with this stuff, because I think there's something comforting in maintaining power in a certain way. And I think kind of the shift that's happening, hopefully for all of us, is a recognition, you know, across industry that when you hold on to power so tightly that it doesn't let others breathe, no good comes from it. That is so, that's just really on point, right? When you suck up all the air because <laughs> you're holding on so tightly, like other people can't flourish and you miss out on all of the good, all the good thinking, all of the good work that can come when you relax a little bit and you let people flourish. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
All right. So I think this is a good place for us to end. So tell everyone where they can learn about you and about the work that you're doing. Yes. So if you have enjoyed today, everything that I've been talking about are coaching techniques. All of this falls under the umbrella of evidence-based coaching, appreciative inquiry, applied positive psychology, empathy mapping. And I run Journey Coaching, which is a coach training program and coaching collective. That's J-R-N-I dot C-O. And if you're interested, journey.co backslash podcast will give you a lot of great information about how to find out how to gain these skill sets or bring it into your company or your workplace. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and your insights and your examples with us today. I learned a lot. I'm so excited to do some more research on some of these models that are new to me and because I just love models and all that stuff. So thank you so much. You're most welcome. It's been awesome. Noelle has generously offered $100 off the Journey Coaching Intensive, which is a 20-week life coach certification for imperfect people to pursue their perfect calling and launch a coaching practice that makes an impact. To get this discount, you must be a member of the Modern Manager community. So to join, go to themodernmanager.co slash join. All the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter, which is also at themodernmanager.co. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team. I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes, and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.